everybody and welcome to this podcast on the five new rules for learning engagement and impact. Adam here from the Assemble U team and today I'm joined by a host of fantastic panelists, interviewees if you will, who will be sharing their thoughts on the five rules for learning engagement that we created off the back of the 10 interviews that we did for the original series of this podcast. So without further ado, I'll get into introducing them because I'm sure everyone's got loads to say. And then we're going to talk through the rules and some of our opinions and thoughts on implementing them, et cetera, in learning and development. First of all, we have Donald Taylor, who is chair of the Learning Technologies Conference in London, a man who needs little to no introduction if you're in the learning space. <laughs> you can see him shaking his head at me. But Don, fantastic to have you on here. We have Toby Harris, who is Chief Customer Officer at Filtered Technologies. Toby's got a real head for anything L&D, so we're really excited to have him join us and chip in his thoughts. And of course, we have Richard Ward, who is co-founder of Assemble U and my cousin. So a family affair in this podcast, indeed. Rich and I haven't actually done a podcast before, I don't think, where we've both been on it. So this is this is quite exciting, being that we run a, a podcast-style audio business. <laughs> no pressure, <Yeah>. guys. <laughs> got to perform. Fantastic. So we've got five rules that we uncovered when running these interviews earlier this year, and they are they're really good rules. And I think they're particularly pertinent if you're maybe new into learning development and looking for a place to, to kind of start. Equally, if you're in a new role and you're looking to refresh a strategy, or if you're just looking for, for new ideas and, uh, and want to continue to develop. The five of them are, number one, listen first and then prioritize. Number two, always in beta. Number three, build opt-in learning networks. Number four, push existing tech before buying. And number five, own your own success metrics. So we'll go through each of those in turn and go a bit deeper into some of the examples we uncovered and draw on some of the experience of our of our panelists as well. So first of all, listen first and then prioritize. Toby, would you like to kick us off with some thoughts on that one? Yeah, thanks, Adam. So I think it's well known that in the bad old days and indeed bad contemporary days of L&D, L&D is completely overstretched because it simply doesn't prioritize it really tries to serve multiple requests. Often very small teams are going to be managing multiple programs per year and even changing those priorities quickly at drop the hat. So we're all coming to recognize that triaging or prioritizing is necessary to achieve greatness. So it's that fantastic element of product management thinking starting to come into L&D practice of like, I've probably only got the resources to execute one program really well and make an impact. So which one's it going to be? However, I thought what was interesting about what your podcast series has uncovered is that there's another practice that's equally important to go with prioritization, and that's that's listening. And I really like some of the examples that came up wherein your interviewees would talk about practices like in your first 90 days or so on a job, attend every meeting you can, but don't just attend meetings that you've arranged, actually sit in on existing meetings, sit in on operational meetings and just listen. There's a real humbleness, a real focus on just actually listening and not directing the agenda yourself. And I think it's a bit like a yin and yang. If you listen really well, you have a good chance of prioritizing the right thing and therefore you can make that impact. So I, I think it's great. And hopefully this, I mean, you even had guests whose whole practice was helping listening, you know, helping people to listen better and helping people to be heard and not interrupt each other, not cut over each other. And, you know, L&D is just as culpable as everyone else in all businesses, but we know that how much genuine listening really gets done, you know, in many companies. So if L&D can be a, a, a beachhead for that practice and the outcome is priorities, it could be could be fantastic, as indeed it is in many of the cases that you interviewed. Brilliant. One of the things that I really liked from the interviews, Toby, to, to follow on from what you're saying, is there's a difference between just listening and then kind of order taking. And I think the best examples that we came across when when speaking to to these these L and D professionals was it was really important to, like you say, listen to what the business objectives were what goals they were trying to hit, what the priorities were in their department and what the pain points were versus asking people what learning they wanted. That's the kind of the big change because asking people what learning they want, you know, you'll, you'll get a list and you'll quickly become overwhelmed and you'll end up with a disparate number of 
odd programs in different modalities that don't necessarily fit or help the company achieve your overall the overall business objectives. And I think the the difference for a lot these industries in particular was everybody listening was listening to build the foundations of something rather than listening to kind of take a list of stuff to go off and, and do. Yeah, it's that that art of asking good questions, asking the right kind of open questions to get to the real priorities and the real pain points. It sounds easy, doesn't it, to say, go after what is the biggest business priority. In my experience of working with customers, that's not as easy as it sounds because there are often many layers to priorities and the top level strategy might not be a real indication of what the key focus is. So yeah, it's a really good guide. I think that runs throughout the whole the whole series. I mean, Don, what do you think about the evolution of first prioritization and then listening, maybe listening and then prioritization? Definitely listening, then prioritization. And it's absolutely essential. I love the five points, by the way. I think the five rules are great. Uh, I would question whether they're new. I think they are more important than ever now. I'm not sure whether, unfortunately, they're necessarily new. But I think this it starts definitely with the listening. But listening by itself is not enough. You have to listen actively, which means two things. You have to listen and then ask questions on the back of what you're hearing. And you have to listen to what people aren't saying as well as to what they're saying. So if people are saying, ah, well, our priority is this or that, they are in medical terms presenting. They come along saying, well, okay, I've got a a headache. Fine. All right. So that could be that you need to have some painkillers. It could be you need brain surgery, right? Just listening to them saying that doesn't give you enough information. You need to ask more questions to drill beneath it. That's something which L&D typically hasn't been very good at. And we're very bad normally at not just doing the listening, but doing the active questioning and engagement that, should, that comes with it to get to Toby's point and finding out what the real business priority is. And it's not necessarily the, the biggest business priority. The biggest business priority might be gaining market share during a recession. That's quite credible as a, as a, as a priority. You have to then drill down from that and find an area where you can have an impact. So it's a question of understanding what that is and then asking the questions that get you to the point of understanding, well, where can L&D make the difference? And also, importantly, where does it not make a difference? Because all too often, of course, the reason why we're overstretched is that people are asking for training courses on everything under the sun. That means if you respond with yes to all of those, you have no time to do anything else. So it's crucial to ask the questions which enable you to understand, well, what's really important, what isn't important, and what things that people are asking for and, and, and relating to training, to which training will have no impact whatsoever. So there's an awful lot behind that very simple two words, listen first. And Toby's right. It's not something that necessarily is easy or comes easily to people. I think it, it comes with practice and it also comes with some of the other stuff that I think we'll uncover when we look at the other rules. One of the things I think makes it easier to listen well is if you have an existing network within the organization, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. That's another point further down the line. I think patience as well is an interesting one because I don't know about you guys, but when I hear a, when I hear a problem, I'm instantly, I'm instantly <laughs> looking for a solution, you know, and that's kind of where my brain yeah. goes. And I think one of the themes that we got from some of these interviews was actually it was, it was about taking time to speak to enough people to get a broad enough view of the problems and the issues in the business before then making any decisions or you know setting any priorities and that was that that's almost for a lot of people fighting against their their natural tendency to you know see a problem get a solution and, um, and yeah if you want to be really strategic in the way that you're deploying the stuff like you say actively actively listen take your time before you make the decisions one other thing about listening which is so important which is that what you're doing is not just gathering information but building relationships and if you find the right people and you're actively listening to them, you're, you're engaging with them in a way that learning and development probably hasn't done before. So you are building a relationship with them, which will prove invaluable later on when you're trying to get stuff done. That's really nice, actually. And connecting your employees and your company together, there's, there's another discussion there around how L&D could help drive culture in businesses. But that's Take it, that'll take us off topic for today. But <laughs> I really like that point. The other piece, Adam, you mentioned kind of avoiding tendencies. And one of the things that came out of this was when asking questions is avoid your own opinions. And it, it mirrors really nicely with recruitment styles and correct questioning and how you don't in, impose your opinion on, on the person you're, you're interviewing. So I, I kind of really encourage that one 
massively that people stay very conscious when during this listening process because you can go into it with the ideal objective of what you want to come out from from that questioning process but uh, ensuring you don't bring your opinions is key. Le- yeah leave your opinions on the uh, on the uh, by the by door, door so to speak brilliant let's move on to the next point because i think it follows on really nicely from from the listening piece and don's already hinted at it a little bit i think so the next one is always in beta being being nimble and, and agile who'd like to kick us off for uh, for this one I mean, I'm a really big fan of always in beta, but with the nuances that the guide sets out, because you, you can notice two tendencies that seem like they contradict each other, but are actually really important, which is you need to be always in beta. You need to be always refining, testing hypotheses, being willing to be wrong and experiment. But you also need a commitment to seeing things through. That comes back to the prioritization. If you've identified, say, that the you know the manager onboarding program is the area where you can make the biggest impact on the business's performance, you can't do one experiment at improving that program, decide that it's a failure, and then walk away. You actually need to take the learnings and roll that on. And it is a bit of a contradiction because you find yourself making a form of commitment. But you also need to do that. It's that ability to be have the resilience, I think, to push through. We tried this, it didn't work, but we know that success is a little bit further down the, down the road. We acknowledge that there's multiple iterations before we get to where we need to be. And we can look back and say, we've, we've achieved something. I really like how open loads of the participants, I'm thinking of Rachel Wood, for example, who's quoted in the guide, was just about being open that we did this. It really didn't work, but we still had the goal. We still wanted, in her case, to achieve a, a mentoring matching program. So we pushed through, so we changed it, and we got there. And I think people just misinterpret this beta mindset rule or trait sometimes as being willing just to walk away from stuff. And it's not quite the same thing. You shouldn't be walking away from commitments to urgent business problems that you've made. I think that's a really good point, Toby. And I, just to reframe or restate what you've already said, I think there's you've got this apparent contradiction which actually is the heart of real chief learning officer success. When I talk to chief learning officers, and I've done it quite a lot recently, to try to determine what makes a good CLO or learning leader of any sort, there is one thing that runs through it, which is a, a balance between these two things. One is this ability to be comfortable with ambiguity. You never have enough information. Now, that kind of goes against the way a lot of people come into L&D, which is, I've got the answer. I'm going to package it up. I'm going to give it to people. That's my job. I'm presenting people with stuff to make them do their job better or help them do their job better. But that willingness or that desire to know everything actually goes against making change happen in organizations. So you, the people who do this job really well, they are comfortable with ambiguity. But at the same time, coming back to Toby's point, they have a pole star. They know where they're trying to get to. And that point is always business-focused. The exact route to get there will depend on the environment, the landscape they encounter on the way. And it's the ability to change direction slightly on the way in order to end up at that end point that makes for an agile response, makes for being always in beta. And I think that that balance of things comfort with ambiguity and knowing exactly where you're heading on the horizon and prioritizing according to that, which is what makes for successful learning leadership generally, and therefore, of course, engaging learning of the type we're talking about here. This one got me thinking also about the learner experience and how, if you're always in beta, are you creating a inconsistent experience for the learner? And if you take a very busy professional that maybe just wants to work within a learning structure or rhythm that they're familiar with, then put out the framework and be in beta within it. So the framework is familiar, consistent, so they know what's coming up over the next six to 12 months, because otherwise you might start to lose them and get drop off as it's too much to keep up with the continual changes if the program is in beta that they're participating in. Yeah, you don't want to be, I guess, from a practical point of view, you don't be throwing too many different systems and logins and various other things at, at learners that can very quickly kill an initiative. And, and, and that's the kind of distinction that I think is so interesting because 
and we certainly see our fair share of this from a vendor perspective, but one the kind of bad version of being always in beta is doing lots of POCs and kind of rolling out platform after platform because you quickly generate a reputation for introducing, bombarding people with digital products. Now, there are ways to run multiple pilots with limited groups and learn from them and then choose. But part of the beta mindset is recognizing what is a big decision and what's a small one. Where can we safely experiment and learn and improve and what's massive? And sometimes I feel like the the big, big, massive decisions are taken almost in, in quite a whimsical way without really consideration of consequences and yet tiny decisions, you know, like what color should this button be can sometimes take up a lot of time. So it's, it's just good to be weighing up, you know, what's a big decision. A one rule is to think what decisions are more or less irreversible, very hard to reverse, because if they are irreversible, practically irreversible decisions, then you need to be sure that you've done your testing and you're willing to follow it through. And that would include a big commitment to a, to a vendor, for example. Toby, I love that idea. I love the observation and the heuristic for dealing with it. it completely, this balance between having your pole star and the willingness to duck and dive on the way to get there, it's about prioritization. When you've got your point on the horizon you're heading towards, people who do that well know that this decision here matters or doesn't matter, is important, isn't important. How do they get to that point? I think the heuristic is a great one. Well, is it, what are the consequences? And if it's irreversible, that's kind of important. And I think you get to that point almost certainly by making probably a series of small mistakes on the way to getting there and the experience. And unfortunately, probably too many people regard themselves as having failed because they had an experience that didn't quite work out rather than regarding it as a stepping stone towards getting where they want to. And I had that conversation with Simon Gibson, who's the chief learning officer at Marks and Sparks recently. And he was absolutely clear that his road to success where he is now was built on having had a series of difficult conversations, some of which are difficult experiences and decisions, some of which he was successful at, some of which less successful at. But I think the mindset that enables you to learn from the downside enables you to get that ability to decide which of these decisions is important which one can we probably just you know get something done like the color of the button that's a great example toby yeah there are some things you can get out and see what happens and there are other things where you've got to take your time and make sure you you put more thought into the process and also sorry one last thing it's a very bad idea if you've got if your gut feeling tells you this is a serious decision to make it by yourself on a friday evening Never mind the timing, <laughs> you know, get it out of the way before the weekend, but never mind the timing. It's also a bad idea to make it by yourself. And that's why that first bit of active listening is so important because you need to build your network and particularly the key people could be an HR, IT, legal, whatever, and have either a formal or an informal network of people that you can run things by. Hey, Ms. HR or Ms. Legal Guru, just going to do this. Do you think that's wise or not? Nine times out of 10, it's fine. But that one time out of 10, that's absolutely when you need their help. But you never have that conversation as your first conversation with somebody in the organization. Never go to somebody who you don't know very well to ask a question which relies on their expertise for your help. Always do that on the back of a relationship that you've already built. So that's why I said right at the beginning, the listening bit to build relationships is so important. It's the relationships which will determine whether you're going to be successful or not. Yeah, brilliant. And that feels like a nice point to roll into item three, which is build opt-in learning networks. Thanks for the, thanks for the, uh, the timing of that comment there, Don. Perfect. Of course, you've got your networks internally. Um, what we're talking about here, I guess, is networks that are specifically built around learning. And one of the interviews in particular was, was spe specifically about this, though quite a few of the other interviewees did also build networks for learning within within the programs they were building. I'm thinking of Anna Silver in particular from, from Continental, who, who built a network for learning and development professionals within Continental. So a place where they could connect, learn from each other, exchange ideas and thoughts. And I think probably my favorite quote from the whole series came from Anna on that when, and this is about success metrics. So I'm jumping ahead a bit, but I said, how do you measure the success of that? And she, she basically said, well, 
if people stop asking me for stuff, then it's a success. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you've actually nailed that. That's 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 perfect. And that is what a network should be doing. And we we see them everywhere at the moment. There are a number of networks within within L and D that are specifically aimed at helping you know people connect with different people within 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 learning and development. And and yeah, and so this idea of an internal network, I think, can be really really strong for how people want to engage with others now who's got some thoughts on that before i sort of take over and keep keep going the first difference is that you can see and, and i agree with don but i don't think these are particularly new principles in that sense the difference is firstly between looking at your populations if you're a statistician and making some assumptions and saying well we have 1000 potential people you know we got 100 people engaged therefore we have a success rate of of 10%, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious that that's not a good way to focus your activity because you're making this theoretical assumption that you're going to get everyone involved in something and that's just never going to happen. And you're then, I think you're, you're treating people like numbers and you're, you're much more likely to game things. And we do unfortunately see this a lot where people will kind of game an LXP implementation by layering on LMS functionality. So everyone has to go there and it's like, well, it, it's good to get some visibility maybe, but, but did you really achieve that? So we definitely need to move beyond that to opt in networks. And you've already spoken, Adam, about the power of those networks. I think the other thing from listening to various episodes really across the series, it seems that these networks are they're not forming spontaneously either. They're actually quite intentional. And I think this is something new. It's like, well, if you intentionally say, we are going to build a network with mixed levels of experience, now that's very different to what would naturally kind of coagulate and form as a network of expertise in the business, the experts club together, the rookies club together. But that intentionality of mixing different levels of ability, so you have a, a learning network but as you said, is like producing new insight and passing stuff on, I think is really, really important and exciting. And what I love about a network is, as you said, once you've built it, you've built something that's quite enduring because it's based on human relationships. It's not based on software that you've implemented at all, really. You can change the software. The relationships will still be there. That, that enduring, lasting network is a, is a really powerful one, actually, is most L&D practitioners you, you speak with are you know, resource poor is, is probably the way to look at it. So so you're you're not only getting out and connecting the organization and getting involved in such a broad in, interesting mix of departments, but you're actually leveraging your your key assets in there, which are your people. And that that has real sustainability. It helps you identify champions and and future leaders, etc. So I, I think that's a, a really interesting area to dig into. Can I just make a point about whether we are building networks or supporting existing networks? Because it could be both, right? It could be that we're trying to set out to build a network which didn't exist before, or it could be we're supporting a network that already exists and we're finding ways to make it to help it flourish in a way that it wasn't before. I think both are valuable, but it's worthwhile considering which one you're doing. In either case, it's important to remember your learning network isn't necessarily heterogeneous. You'll have some people in any group of people who are more enthusiastic, some people who are less enthusiastic. If you are trying to drive everything from the center of the learning network and you're trying to make everyone G up and gung ho about stuff, that's a lot of work. As Richard says, people in L&D tend to be resource poor. There's too much going on. The answer is, and I think Toby mentioned this, is to look at your key players, the key influencers within a network to try to help them be as effective as possible and support them as much as possible. Now, there's lots of good examples of doing this. Most recently, Learning Technologies, we had Steph Constantinides from Heathrow Airport working with a bunch of people who are deskless workers who are having to learn pretty much on their own time because they can't, they can't do a course on their phone when they're supposed to be manning security. It's all very well to have passed your compliance on something, but, oh, when you were doing that course, you missed somebody coming through with something terrible who got on a plane, right? So that's not a good approach. So they're doing it more or less on their own time. And she's had a great success of going around and building popularity around the idea of learning with people by focusing on the people who are 
not focusing necessarily exclusively, but supporting the people who are the, the key advocates and helping them then support the other people and encourage the other people in the network. So it's worthwhile remembering that your network isn't just a bunch of people who are all learners. Yes, they are. They are heterogeneous. They're not homogenous. They are different. So find the ones who are super engaged, support them and make them feel loved. That gives you authentic, credible advocates out there. It also provides a fantastic two-way street because you, they'll tell you what you need to improve very quickly. And that will help you with the previous point of listening and being agile and responding quickly so that you don't go large with something which then turns out to be a bit messy. Rather, you can tweak things in, and be in beta in response to these people who are enthusiastically giving you their support. That deskless learners example is a really good one of how networks of any kind aren't neutral. They quickly come to embody certain ideas or values. And to your point, Don, about they help you learn how to improve what you're doing. They have their good feedback mechanisms. The kind of values that you're spreading take on this, you know, their own life inside the network. And then it becomes a self-correcting process because if you've set things up along a certain path and then suddenly there's some kind of dreadful compromise you're forced to make about one of the key principles, the active participants in the network are going to say, hey, no, no, this is not what we set out to do. So I really love that that element of that. And then instead, you, instead of talking always in the first person or, you know, limited third person, we as L&D are saying this, we're trying to get them to listen. You're talking in, in a sense of a much bigger group, you know, on behalf of a collective. So I think that's a really fantastic example of how values can be, you know, driven into people's minds via a network. And that value point comes back to what we were saying earlier about what's important, what's not important. And your great learning leaders will absolutely have values at the core of what they do and won't compromise on those. They don't care necessarily about the color of the button, but if they're asked to do something that's off piece and goes off their values and doesn't, isn't aligned with what L&D should be doing, they'll fight hard against that. And that consistency of messaging around what L&D stands for internally is really important. You can't be inconsistent around who you are and what your values are and hope to bring people with you on a journey. That, that Heathrow example is fascinating because people are going above and beyond that. They, they're participating outside of their working hours, so they have a very progressive, positive mindset. And that sounds to me like it's a cultural development there where there's momentum building and more people are coming on board and it's got that, that kind of... I'm trying to think of an analogy here of just a movement, really, where everything's sort of snowballing and, and improving. Yeah, it's, fair, it, you know, it's always the case. You have a distribution of people. Some people will be super enthusiastic. There are going to be some people who just are never going to do it. And it's, it, it's a mistake to try to bring everybody on the journey at the same pace at the same time. Start with your key influencers, the most enthusiastic people. Accept also that there will be some people who are just never going to come on the journey. And that may be okay, depending on what they have to learn. That may be okay. It's a question always of using your resources as effectively as possible. And those key influences, are they, I think you mentioned this, they're championing them yeah. in some way? Are they featured in a... Well, there are lots of ways. There are lots of ways you can do it. You can, you can champion them by, by giving them prizes for doing stuff. And that's, I'm not saying this is what they're doing at Heathrow or not, right? That's one way of doing it. But typically, actually, what helps people feel enthusiastic about what they're doing anyway, because they enjoy doing it, is if they get kudos for doing it. And it could be a leaderboard. It could just simply be, look, we notice that Bob's doing a great job with what he's doing, or Jane's doing a fantastic job with what she's doing. Thanks so much. In a regular message that goes out, it could be as simple as that. But also, and I think this is important, and you could do it on one site like Heathrow, more difficult distributed. It's important to get there physically and say, just, you just show up. Bob or Jane is there. You're having a chat with them. Thanks so much. Look, great job. What thoughts do you have for us? You have a conversation with them, with other people in a physical space where this whole digital thing, which seems ethereal, becomes real. And you're seen as being someone who is engaging in a real adult conversation with Bob or Jane. And the other people in that room get it. And that relationship you've got with the person changes their relationship with the learning. That's something I wanted to touch on, actually, Don, a little bit, the whole in-person versus hybrid, because I feel like networks now, especially within learning development and encouraging learning culture and things like that, may be 
more important now than than ever before because in a lot of workplaces we've lost those incidental water cooler moments where you would see somebody from a different department or maybe you'd have a drink with them at the end of the week or something like that and so that the network in whatever form it is you know whether it's something on teams something digital or a, a group getting together sort of forces if you like those incidental encounters that were maybe happening when everybody was in the same building i mean obviously there's still plenty of workplaces where everyone is in the same building and that's happening but but there there are many now who who, who are not i think there's two things here one is the what happens in the it, it, well actually two things that come out of what happens in the conversation one is you have the surfacing of tacit knowledge which is what you're talking about with the water cooler conversation that's probably a whole nother podcast but in terms of getting people into being enthusiastic about learning and what it says about the role of the values the status of L&D I'm reminded of Dune now you know you know Dune the book by Frank Herbert it's a science fiction book about desert planet what have you I read that when I was a teenager and it's an enormous book I can only remember one thing from it right which is that water is so precious that if you spit at somebody it's seen as being an act of giving credibility and humility to this person because you're sharing something rare for you water so you spit at them you're saying you are effectively superior to me right we've moved quite rapidly from an area where face-to-face contact was taken for granted to where it is much more limited and i've noticed that even at learning technologies it's a bit weird and a bit creepy but you want to have more contact with more people because you are virtually in contact with people most of the time not too creepy but it's a bit odd it's not like it was 20 years ago it's now much more the case that you want a face-to-face contact with people and almost regardless of what happens during that contact almost regardless of it the contact itself is enough now let's go beyond just the fact you have contact with people if you're learning and development you're coming in and you're having contact with people yes it has to be valuable it can't just be for show but what you what that becomes the first part of is the equivalent of the spit in dune right because water is so valuable that's valuable there face-to-face contact is so rare it becomes more valuable and the key thing is the trust you build out of it you can't or rather it's not that you can't trust people online but when you have online relationships with people you have a certain level of trust face-to-face for whatever reason we give more trust to people we imbue that relationship with more value and if you can get out there and you can add to the online stuff you're doing with the face-to-face stuff you add that vital component the stuff that's so rare the water from dune which is the trust bit which you can't get elsewhere precisely because of the environment we're in which is where most things are online. I've probably overdone it with the whole Frank Herbert Dune world, but you get the idea. We've shifted how we live our lives. Trust, for me, is a huge currency of the future. L&D needs to recognize that and use it to best effect. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, we've not, that's our first spit, spitting analogy we've had on the podcast, Don, but, but the, <laughs> the point is well. In a positive oh, way. Very, in a positive yeah, way. No, definitely. No, the, the point is well taken. And I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. It's a good example in particular because there's a great degree of negativity still associated with face to face stuff, too. That idea of trying to remote learning location, especially if it's not a very glamorous one and the sandwiches aren't very good. That has caused a lot of discontent in organizations too. So it's recognizing that the right kind of in-person contact is actually something that's very precious. So I really like how Don phrased that, that trust is the precious thing. And interestingly, you can tell from most of these, if not all of these episodes, that the, the people you've got to feature on the podcast clearly develop those really trusting relationships. Absolutely. And they use that trust to get to the real questions and to get to the real answers to those questions. They don't rely on stacks of theory or thought leadership or models that they stick to. They've actually just got this way to build human relationships. And can I just come in quickly with a follow-up point on that? I wrote this book, it must be six years ago now or something, Learning Technologies in the Workplace. I interviewed a bunch of people looking at case studies of what had been successful in the previous 16 years for implementing learning technology there was a common factor that was strung between all the people without them recognizing it which is that they had all 
either been in their organization for a fairly long time, or they had deliberately built networks of trust within the relationship, within the organization. And those networks and those relationships that they had were the bedrock on which they then built a successful learning technology implementation. They didn't realize that was the case, but they were able to do things that people who are coming in afresh without that network were unable to do. And it was because they had trusted relationships, which then led to a whole bunch of affordances, which you can't get otherwise. Brilliant. Brilliant. Cool. I think we should move on. We've got two more to cover. And the next one is, and I'm, I'm a real fan of this, is push existing tech before buying. And, uh, and I'm sure Toby is a fan of this as well, given, given what he does currently. But this is something we heard over and over again with all of the interviews. And actually just something we've heard a lot this year in particular is utilizing what you have, you know, putting learning in the, in, in the pieces of software and on the devices that people are already using if you're using digital and making it making it a seamless or simple learner experience and again this this links back to the always in beta and listening to people because why make a big technology investment until you're really sure about making that big decision in the meantime there's probably a way to roll out a learning initiative using your existing infrastructure yeah i've always been an advocate of this idea i was surprised in the podcast interviews just how clearly it came across and how how innovative people were being using existing tech it's not that learning management systems and course libraries don't get discussed they do but it's not the dominant tenor of the discussions it's actually it's almost like the tech is not as important as it can sometimes seem to be it can sometimes be all consuming getting this tech to work together and of course it fundamentally is important what it makes me think of is that what you're trying to achieve is some kind of culture, some kind of behavior, some kind of process that humans do, and that's far more valuable than technology. And I think the challenge can be we have to invest pound signs, dollar signs into technology, but it doesn't really do much on its own unless the human behavior around that changes and you'll get the outcomes you want. You haven't really spent anything. and so. It's, it's, it's interesting. It, it, it's a continual challenge. I'm not saying it's simple to go back and forward because if you're, if you're going to use existing tech, you're going to have to put up with manual processes. Sometimes things are going to be a bit buggy. Things are going to break and you'll be you know, patching things over. But on the other hand, you do gain a familiarity because people know how to use their existing tech already, especially if it's spreadsheets and Microsoft Teams. And you get sight of where the problems are, I think, with it and where you might need to fill the specific gaps and you could just come to those kind of bigger technology decisions in a more mature way. But I'm, I'm surprised, like I said, by the way that this theme was addressed. And I, I think it's quite a big and significant shift that the industry should pay attention to as well. I think the, the penny might be dropping, but a lot of the things to do with just hosting some content or having a meeting that's embedded into learning software those things are now doable with some pretty good tools out there. It felt like people were using this a little bit as a protection. So uh, spending your time and energy evaluating what tech you have and how that could deliver your current programs rather than going out to market and the kind of overwhelming tsunami of sales teams prospecting into you and RFPs and reviews and other products. It was like, no, just I, I got the sense from multiple people that they just wanted to hold all that back at the moment, it was probably partly driven by the CFO, but but more for their own kind of sanity. And that if you look at the number of providers out there now, the the amount of platforms and products that can serve different challenges just seems phenomenal. And people are almost intimidated by opening that can. Like, do we want to go down that route, or should we just look at what we have? Yeah, just I thought that was a, a fascinating theme that came through. I think the alternative to sweating the tech, which is what we're talking about here, is the mindset, which I think has been very prevalent and seems to be less prevalent now. It's what I call the Nordic ski under the bed, when people are convinced that, yeah, I'll get fit. I just buy this machine and that's it. And of course, it never is. And that's where you have the exercise machine gathering dust under the bed and the person slightly shamefacedly 
lying to their mates at the pub about how often they use it. It's a bit like saying, yeah, yeah, we've got a, we've got a compliance fulfillment rate of mumbling percent. In contrast to that, people who are got their eye on the horizon are willing to be agile on the way to get there will absolutely sweat the tech to reach the end goal because they know the, the technology is the tool to achieve that. A caveat, though, and I think this is important, Toby alluded to it, we have to be ready to then take the next step. If you're using Excel as a stopgap for a database, there will come a point where there is an admin overload in putting everything into CSV files and transferring it from one place to another. This is not a random example. This happens all the time in L&D. And that admin overload gets pretty high sometimes. And at that point, you should be saying to yourself, all right, we've established what the systems are. We know we need to do these steps. Now let's get a platform that will help us do that. Another classic example, you produce a lot of videos, which are good to share. Great. You put them on SharePoint. Nothing against SharePoint, but it's not necessarily designed for this. And, and I've seen this happen. It's great up to a point, and then it becomes impossible to find what on earth you're looking for, and the utility of what you were doing dies away. You have to find the right way of either indexing that stuff or change to a different platform. Again, again, the end point is better performance. You get there by sweating the tech. You find that you've reached a certain point. And that point now longer now no longer does what you needed to do, and you've got to be ready to take the next step. So it's just a matter of adding to this idea that you sweat the tech up to the point to it becomes no counterproductive to use what you've got, and then you've got to find some other way of doing the same thing. Yeah, you are going to need some tech in the end. It's important to if we think of that Nordic ski example. It, you generally new sports pursuits don't go well when you go out and spend five hundred pounds on equipment. <laughs> without actually having established a habit or, you know, you're really getting into it. But at some point, you're going to be spending a lot of money on it, on this hobby or this or this new pursuit if you're successful at it. And it is quite similar. It's not, and this needs to be part of the upfront framing as well. We're going to use this until we understand where the breaking points are. And then we're going to invest because it, the same dynamic of technology and behavior, it works in the other direction as well. At some point, the great new behaviors, they're going to require technology. They will need the technology. And that, that, that example of just overusing SharePoint is a great one. You've got to be ready for the moment people, multiple people start saying, we can't find anything. That's when you're going to need to introduce something else. Yeah, to, to to follow on from Rich's point as well, if you are listening and gathering that feedback as you go, you'll be in a much better position to make an informed mm. purchasing choice. You know, because you you'll know you know what what are the big pain points here, and different technologies and different software solutions speak to different pain points in different ways. So you know you'll be able to spot what that tech is that's going to work well if you've done almost the the hard work of of running running all this stuff through your existing software and having to ha- having had done a lot of the you know the manual lift or the heavy lifting that you need to do to test these different initiatives out. Cool. So use your existing tech up to a point. And then, and then once you're out of once data, you're out, out of beta, yeah, exactly. Great. So final point or final rule, own your own success metrics. And this one I loved. And I think everyone had an opinion on this, everybody who we interviewed around kind of tracking impact or tracking engagement and what does success look like to them. And there was one really big theme that came out of it actually, which was great. And, and that was keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate it. Find the metrics that are really important to track or find the ones that relate most closely to business objectives, business priorities, and, uh, and, and track them. But don't track loads of stuff. You, know, you, don't, you don't need an, a massively overcomplicated dashboard of numbers and all the rest of it. But the uh, linking back to point one, by talking to lots of people and actually properly understanding the problems, you can then almost pull out your, your, what your success metrics are going to look like quite early on yeah the participants seem to have a good really good grasp of the difference between qualitative data and and quantitative data where the quantitative data numbers and and stats is good at telling you telling you what you're looking at maybe but it doesn't really tell you why you know the qualitative stuff listening understanding the real priorities where you need to be and developing your poll star from that is the, the the consistency and they they also seem to be good at understanding how there are things that the, the business measures 
and they're going to need a strong qualitative case, you know, to make that they made an impact on that. They don't get really too tied up in the weeds of I'm going to prove a direct causal link through statistics. They're going to develop the trust and the networks and the relationships, but it's just obvious that that's, that's what's happening. But yet, they're, they're not slackers either. They do measure metrics. They, they keep it simple, but they measure metrics. And they don't do it to, to parade vanity metrics. They do that because they know that's how they can optimize what they're doing. So that's how they can stay in beta. And so they do own them. You know, they're not waiting for an annual survey to be done that references their efforts in one question. You know, they'll be expecting to impact that question. That's for sure. You know, they'll be expecting the impact to be there. But they are owning measurements, often through interviews or surveys that they run and control on an ongoing basis. Mm. And they, they take that data seriously. So yeah, I, I really like this. And I, I think, uh, you know, to talk to Don's point about whether this is new or not, it seems to be sp spreading in my experience. We're in a different place now than we were maybe five, 10 years ago around this getting comfortable with the different kinds of data and what they're good for. What do you guys think about this point that Michael shared from Signature Academy, where they're aligning it to helping with retention of staff? So L&D is impacting retention versus what I've always come to this with thinking that L&D should impact skills development, let's say. We're, yeah, I think it's, I think Toby's phase. quant qual assessment is a really interesting one there because there's loads of things that can impact retention, you know, the economy, company performance, all sorts of things, whether people are getting pay rises or not. And so to get to the bottom of that statistic or that number and whether L&D is having an impact is where the qualitative element needs to needs to come in. You need, really need to understand why people are staying or why people are leaving with you know with exit interviews and things. So that's my that's my two cents on it. I think retention is absolutely a powerful result of learning and development. The question is, should we explicitly say that's our goal? If we do, we run the risk of falling prey to factors we have no control over: the state of the economy as a whole, other things that are happening within the organisation. Also, we are susceptible to another argument. Okay, so rather than spending this money on L&D to improve retention, should we spend it on, I don't know, fun days out, increased time off, whatever, which will also help retention. We become susceptible to other things. I would rather say our primary goal is an increase in performance. And guess what? Look, if you're not convinced that we can show you exactly how much we're improving in performance, although you accept that we are, we have this bonus, which is that we've got retention improving in, in, as well, and we can absolutely stick a pounds, shillings, and pence number on that. In other words, I'd always lead with one metric which we can save results from L&D, but don't be ashamed to grab that as well and get some part of that too. Does that make sense? Yeah, a lot. I think it also comes down to alignment as well. So in the Signature Academy's case from Michael Miller, I think it was, the business as a whole, as a whole, had identified a serious competitive risk because of the nature of what they do, which is outsourced R and D. I think, but war for talent is very important for them, especially in challenging economic circumstances. And so it was because the whole business was focused on that. It wasn't picking a metric at the end of the year and thinking how can I impact next year and do I want to get into a room and argue for the value of this. It was about getting behind what the business is doing overall but doing it in a way and we spoke about this a little bit earlier in a way that he knew that he could help which was why building a network of coordinating different centers of knowledge in the organization and ultimately building this academy offer that then became important to that to that narrative so the important thing was alignment and then you know it gives him as much as all the other people a, a, a good claim on that improvement in retention because they've all been working on the same team because if we're perfectly honest we know that things don't really have one cause anyway do they statistics are always complicated there's always a case for a na narrative and a story and and that's the important thing it's a, again it's nuanced you know numbers need to be a part of a story they don't stand up as a story on their own and that's what I think are your group of really pragmatic and effective LED practitioners have really, really grasped that, which is really, really good stuff. If I can follow on from that, I think that is absolutely right and stands in contrast to generally how a lot of people in L&D approach data, which is I'll present some data or perhaps some information based on the data. What they don't do is add the interpretation, which gives value to this, makes it information or better still, insight. So 
yes, we've done these things, and this is what it means to the business, and therefore it has these implications. The smart people like those on the interviews are, are doing that. And for me, that's what owning the data means. It means adding your own value by adding the interpretation to it. And that's how L&D gets to have more serious conversations with the business. If we're simply reporting numbers, we're not typically providing a great deal of value. Yeah. And I think that's the really important thing to anybody in learning and development listening is, is linking those numbers and those success metrics to, to learning and development. And like you say, being in charge of that narrative almost to, 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 to make it clear where the impact is coming from, what's, what's happening. And then, yeah, linking that back to the conversations you've had, to your beta mindset, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, I think these five rules definitely work very much in conjunction with, with each other in, a, in, in quite a nice way. I mean, success is feeling as much as it is a, a concrete state. You know, if, you, if it's working, you're, you, it feels like it's working. Now, if, you're, if it feels like it's working, and, or, or conversely, if a numbers say something and it doesn't feel like it's working, there's a good reason to be suspicious about that. But it's also not enough just to feel like it's working. You need the numbers to back that up. And I think that's why even the way that the series presents its insights in the form of these individual stories with a beginning and a middle and an end of how this process happened, is just a, it's one of the best kind of learnings you can do, I think, as a as an L&D professional is just listen through to these stories so you can get your own conclusions. And in this case, the way that data has been used is definitely a, a key part of that. And please, let's avoid the awful situation where it is being successful, but the feeling is that it's not, which happens too often. L&D is doing its job, but isn't making apparent the link between what it's doing and the positive effect on the organization. Don't be afraid to shout out for yourself, but also to get those key influencers on board who will be your advocates for you. Fantastic. Well, Don, Rich, Toby, thank you so much for your time. This has been a super interesting discussion and I hope everybody listening found it interesting too. The the, the topics or the the theme of this podcast came from a set of interviews that we did within the oh, where we interviewed different learning and development professionals you can actually listen to all of those interviews at assembleu.com slash learning hyphen challenges you can also download the five new rules for learning engagement and impact playbook that we put together at that location as well we hope you enjoyed it if you did please share this with other people that you know in the industry we're quite a nice industry like that i think and i i've certainly benefited a lot of my learning education has come from other people in the in the industry who have sent me interesting things to read and of course to listen to so thanks everybody and we'll be back at some point with a, another learning challenges series cheers <laughs>